This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. After neo-Nazis held a rally in Orlando last weekend, we reached out to an expert on extremism and anti-Semitism in America. Susan Cork is the director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project. She spoke earlier this week with WMFE's Joe Burns. Susan, thank you so much uh, for talking with us about this important issue. First of all, I was hoping you could put in perspective uh, for us, what is this group, the National Socialist Movement? The National Socialist Movement is a pretty scary group, actually. They're one of this country's oldest neo-Nazi groups. They have their roots in the original American Nazi Party, which was founded in 1959. And, you know, as you know from the rally this weekend, they openly idealize Hitler. They've been involved in, you know, many ugly things over the years. Uh, Members of the National Socialist Movement were involved in the tragic, deadly riot in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. They were a defendant in the Sines-Kessler civil suit, and they were found guilty, actually, of charges of civil conspiracy for those who planned and promoted the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. So they have a you know very frightening, very neo-Nazi ideology. They've actually declined in influence, though, um, in recent years since Unite the Right. You know, they, for a while, were the biggest neo-Nazi group in the country, and they, you know, kind of increased in prominence from 2004 through 2017. Um, So they've really dwindled exponentially. So one thing I I would want to stress is that they do these kind of very public, provocative, violent rhetoric demonstrations in part to make themselves seem bigger than they are. So one message I want to say is that we shouldn't overemphasize their importance. They are a group that is failing in many regards. They're failing to get new members. So they're, they're trying to make themselves seem bigger by being as provocative as they can be. There have been questions about whether or not these were neo-Nazis coming in from the outside to Orlando. But what I was finding is they may actually have a, a home here, as it were. I mean, they do have a home there and they do have a prominent... I mean, relatively prominent group in Kissimmee, based out of Kissimmee, Florida. Um, Their former leader, Jeff Shope, who was the one who's the defendant in the Sines-Kessler trial, he was the one who, you know, was really considered influential in their rise. Um, You know, he was very young at the time he got involved in it. He was initially very effective at um, recruiting. For a while, they tried to kind of go more mainstream and appeal, you know, they, for a while they did away with the Nazi insignia, the swastika, and and were trying to um, attract wider, more mainstream appeal, which, you know, worked for a while and was effective during the Trump era. But now I think they're, they're really trying to find their way and have lost, um, you know, they've become more toxic and they're having a hard time recruiting. When we look at the bigger picture, are we seeing an increase in anti-Semitism in the United States and in Florida? You know, I've been tracking anti-Semitism for years, and it's kind of sad but too true that almost every year that I've been involved in organizations tracking it, it's it's increased. Um, and that is true past year in Florida. You know, I, I'm familiar with Anti-Defamation League's statistics saying that in Florida over the past year, anti-Semitic incidents have increased by 40%, which is very shocking in a short amount of time. Um, And 
I'd also say, you know, it's not only the, the sheer number of it, but when there's a high profile event like this following the hostage taking at the synagogue, the message of, of fear that it creates for the community is much, much bigger than the actual the incidents themselves. And it's the methods of the anti-Semitic incidents that's also very scary. I, I you know, saw that there was also a flyering incident in southern Florida recently. That's one of those things that I, if you hear it, it sounds like kind of a silly word, flyering, dropping flyers. You think of that as in terms of just like low-budget advertising. But what's actually very frightening about it is that they're intercepting people in their daily lives. So it creates this this fear as somebody's at the grocery store and gets, you know, a hateful anti-Semitic pamphlet on their car. So this interception of hate as people are living their daily lives, that creates this simmering fear that really affects the community because you have the sense that you're not safe wherever you go. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, Trump unleashed a lot of this, the Overton window of what was deemed acceptable to talk about. A lot of these hate groups got a lot of momentum out of Trump's violent rhetoric against different races, different religions, different ideologies. So it's more infused into the mainstream now. So it's what's deemed unacceptable and extreme and fringe is now part of mainstream discourse. It's repeated by Tucker Carlson on Fox News to millions and millions of people, the great replacement theory that at its heart is very anti-Semitic. So that's what's really scary is people are, they show, they get a flyer on their car. They see this ugly rally with people with swastikas in the middle of the street. And they're also seeing Tucker Carlson repeating in a somewhat sanitized, but dog whistle kind of way, these terrible, racist, anti-Semitic messages. Have people who study this been able to determine what has led to this increase in anti-Semitism in, in the U.S.? Having studied it for years, there's no like easy answer, but it has become a really disturbing attribute of our country. And I started following the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, and there was a real steep increase when there was uh, the financial crisis and the refugee crisis. So at times of insecurity where people feel like they don't have, that there's great financial inequality or people feel like they're suffering, as well as, you know, the refugee crisis where politicians manipulate the rhetoric and create a fear mongering, an ethno-populist message of us versus them. So So we really watched the rise in France and Germany, Hungary, Greece of this othering, this polarization based on race. And I will say that anti-Semitism is sort of the canary in the coal mine. Once there's a rise in anti-Semitism, it is a sign of, you know, kind of greater uh, ethnic division and fear mongering to come that will fray at democracy. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Um, I think, you know, for my friends in Europe, it was horrifying to them to see Charlottesville, that people were literally taking tiki torches and using swastikas because um, they had felt that in, you know, in America, that unlike Europe, um, that has, you know, a very ugly history, that America was sort of a safer place and that 
it was, you know, more integrated and safer. So that was really frightening, not just in America. Of course, it was very frightening in America, but it also made Jews around the world feel less safe. So, yeah, so I would say, you know, the the sense of financial insecurity. And again, it's not always necessarily where there is real financial insecurity. It is directly correlated to the use of rhetoric by political leaders to stoke these fears and then to create a very easy enemy. And, you know, anti-Semitism is, you know, an age-old tactic and hatred to, you know, this conspiracy of the global elites and Jews controlling everything. And it's, you know, an entry point of hatred into other forms of bigotry and prejudice, into uh, white supremacy, into anti-Muslim, into anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ. Even though we're tracking at SPLC hate groups into verticals, there's a real blending of the ideologies. And it's less about being a card-carrying member of a particular group. It's become this movement that is about um, hatred of the other. And, you know, the kind of tip of the spear of that, they are looking for a violent overthrow of our government for a white ethno-Christian ethno-state. So it's, you know, very scary stuff. I wanted to ask you uh, what individuals can do in uh, in their private and public lives, what they can do to counter that kind of hatred. Yeah, there's a number of things. You know, one, this group is looking for attention. And as much as it is hurtful and it's important that leaders speak out swiftly, condemn this activity, condemn the ideology, condemn the individuals that are perpetrating it. I know, you know, it was, you know, Governor DeSantis should have just immediately condemned it. That's any leader in a position of um, political power should immediately condemn anti-Semitism wherever it occurs. So that's number one. Number two is this group is small and dwindling. We need to deprive them of the oxygen they're trying to get. I, I would urge communities to respond by remaining centered on survivors and the victims of hate and bias and consolidating around them, build community resilience around them, not put the focus on the hate group who wants to drive media attention to themselves, put the focus on the communities who are being harmed, why it's harmful, how we can help. You know, one area that SPLC has really been increasing our focus is on the prevention aspect and building community resilience. Um, so trying to impact and prevent people going down the path of radicalization, helping parents, caregivers, teachers recognize the signs and inoculate against it. And then also really working on community resilience um, to be able to push back against these hateful ideologies and not let them become part of our political mainstream. Still to come, an outpouring of support for Orlando's Jewish community and calls to push back against hate and extremism after last weekend's display. More when we return. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Civil rights groups are rallying around Orlando's Jewish community after a small group of neo-Nazis demonstrated over the weekend, waving flags and yelling slurs. The rallying cry after a gunman killed 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando in 2016 was, We will not let hate win. The founder of the One Pulse Foundation, Barbara Poma, says the events of last weekend shows just how important it is to take a stand against hate and intolerance. You know, initially it's always the shock, horror and heartbreak 
um, that I think we feel over and over again when we see uh, moments like this still transpiring. But at the same time, it, it, it actually reinforces the need for the work that we're all doing in our community. You know, there's multiple ways to address it, and one of them is, is to continually speak up about equality, inclusivity, and diversity, and how important those words are. Um, using loving words and logical arguments, we talk about our six words from the foundation all the time that came from this community, the love, hope, courage, unity, strength, and acceptance. And I think, you know, talking about that and, and using that in our language and approaching these topics in that way will be helpful. I think it's really important to educate yourself. Um, you know, use our education to combat bullying and cyberbullying and harassment. I mean, there are just so many ways to to attack this assault on our on our humanity. Really important, I think, it's also on speaking up against these injustices and and supporting these victims directly and indirectly. Kathy Turner is the vice president of marketing for the Holocaust Memorial Resource and Education Centre. She says education is the key to pushing back against the kind of hate on display over the weekend. It's always disturbing. It's always disturbing and um, unfortunately not shocking because we receive these reports on a weekly basis now. So um, it is always a concern of ours and something that we're very much aware of that still not only exists and is very much alive today, but seems to be growing and is always something to be addressed. We believe the way to address this is through education. Ironically, you mentioned International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Abe Kazam, local Holocaust survivor and founding dean of the Rosen College for Hospitality Management, one of the reasons that he chose to share his story last Thursday evening was because he feels like history is repeating itself. These neo-Nazis that gathered this past weekend are an example of that, of how this hatred is still alive and well today and must be addressed. And one of the ways to do that is to share the stories like he did, other powerful Holocaust survivor testimonies. It just speaks to the relevancy and the importance of the work that we do day in and day out. Does what happened, what transpired over the weekend, does it make you think about the security for the Holocaust Center and your own personal safety as well? Absolutely. We have absolutely ramped up our security efforts as a campus. We share a campus with the Uh, Jewish Community Center of Greater Orlando right next door and the Jewish Federation of Greater Orlando overseen by Keith Dvorak. Uh, We are happy to share this campus with them. And in that, we also share security campus wide. So we have increased our security efforts to ensure safety of all of our employees, all of our guests, all of our speakers, all of our students. Um, But it is absolutely a concern. And uh, whenever we have a, a threat this close by right in our backyard, it's another testament of why it's it's crucial that we keep a watchful eye and a watchful ear and continue to work with our partners at the ADL, the FBI, and others to, to just do our very best and remain vigilant. Just picking up on something you said earlier about being shocked but not surprised in some ways, and I note the Southern Poverty Law Center says anti-Semitic incidents have risen in recent years, but this particular group that was active over the weekend has dwindled in size, which is kind of an interesting paradox. But I mean, what does that tell you about the threat of this kind of hatred in Florida or indeed across the United States? Well, again, this is uh, this is something that we have reports of, whether it's this particular group or otherwise. Um, this particular group might be dwindling, as you said, but 
anti-Semitism in general seems to be on the rise. Um, hatred, racism, discrimination, prejudice in general is on the rise, whether that's Florida or in our country. And it's just, it's alarming. And it's something that we are paying very close attention to, of course. Um, but it, it's not just these groups of adults that we're seeing out in highways or in parking lots or on the roadside near UCF or other places. These incidents are happening in our local high schools, our local colleges, our local universities. Um, it is at all age levels, and it is um, it are it may be people that are traveling through that are on tour, like the Goya Defense League, but it's also happening in our backyard with our own community members. And to me, that's where we really need to address the roots of it, to dig into the roots, and to bring we say students of all ages through our Holocaust Center to get the message out. Again, we really believe that the way to address the roots of hatred is through education. And that's how we are going to really make a difference. So if you think about what you do from here on out, because it sounds like it's important to make sure that you're putting forward the effort that, that's needed to counteract this kind of hatred, right? And that comes to education. But what does that mean in effect? Like what sort of discussions are you having about how do we work to make sure that these stories aren't sort of uh, left in the dark and, and people have a really good grasp of what happened uh, during the Holocaust? That's part of our daily mission is working to ensure that these stories are told, but in a way that grows our audiences and truly does reach students of all ages. One of the things that we have on one of our displays, our exhibits right now, is an exhibit called Uprooting Prejudice Conversations for Change. It's actually featuring the life story of a Black musician named Daryl Davis who spent his entire life planting seeds, starting conversations with the belief that if we're talking, we're not fighting. And that's really what it's about, right, is coming together and having conversations with folks that um, may be of an opposing viewpoint to enlighten them and hopefully to touch their heart, change their mind, get them to have a more empathetic viewpoint, to be more respectful. It's not just about acceptance and tolerance, but truly building that understanding and respect and empathy. And so um, it's just critically important that we continue to have, to plant seeds and have these these conversations to bring about change. But we're going to continue to partner with folks in the community, with the school system, so that we can continue to share stories like Daryl's, like Abe's, like Tess Wise, like, you know, all these other wonderful Holocaust survivors and stories that we have in the community. It was our mission to continue to share these lessons and these stories in a highly impactful way so that students, you know, as, as young as third, fourth, fifth grade, all the way up to, you know, the, the survivors themselves are able to engage with us. The kind of hatred we saw on display over the weekend is pretty extreme. I wonder what you would say to people for whom that message resonates. You know, how do you get through to folks like that? Or even people, maybe there's something in what they saw over the weekend that clicks with them. How do you reach those people? Uh, I mean, I would say you can't get through to everyone. Well, this past weekend was an example of that. Uh, we know that. We're not naive to think that we're going to win everyone over. We can't get through to everyone. Um, again, education is the key. I, we really believe that it starts at home. We, we go into the schools as well. We go into middle schools and high schools, um, share these stories, and, and again, an attempt to touch hearts, change minds, give them a different viewpoint, help to build that respect and understanding and that empathy as best as we can to go out to the schools and to bring them in. But it really starts at home. It starts at home. And if we can reach students, and maybe those students will impact their parents, their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, 
Uh, we might not be able to get to that older generation per se, but we're, we are really going to try to make a difference in the next generation and hopefully um, they will plant seeds of their own and they will make a difference and they will inspire the change that's needed to take action. And what about the response from lawmakers and law enforcement too, because they're often, you know, responding to these things as they happen. What what do you say to them? Like, what's the appropriate response? What What do you want to see from them? You know, we try really hard not to politicize anything. We try really hard not to get political right wing, left wing or otherwise. Um, we are uh, incredibly fortunate to have the support of Mayor Dyer, Mayor Demings, Representative Eskamani. Anna Eskamani has been wonderful in addition to both mayors and uh, Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith has also been a huge advocate. We are fortunate that we have many political leaders um, in our local government and state government that has take, have taken a stance Um, not only against this neo-Nazi behavior and the recent events and the anti-Semitism, blatant anti-Semitism and racism, but also in support of our efforts and saying all the more reason why the work of the center is so important, so crucial. Please support their efforts, and we're so appreciative of that. I won't get into what was said or wasn't said by politicians I'll just say that we're very grateful for those who are denouncing these ideologies and are taking a stand against. It's very apparent Keith Dvorak and others in this Jewish community um, have all said we have to stand united. That's the only way that we're going to really push back and fight this hatred is we all have to stand united against it and say this is not welcome in our community. It's not welcome in Central Florida. It's not accepted here. We don't tolerate it. Well, Kathy Turner, Vice President of Marketing and Development for the Holocaust Memorial and Resource and Education Center in Orlando. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Up next, the pandemic shone a spotlight on some of America's most glaring health inequities. We'll talk with three people who are paying close attention to the disparities and how to close the gaps. That's when Intersection returns. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Black women in America are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. Maternal mortality is just one health disparity that researchers and doctors are working to understand, and the pandemic has shone a spotlight on the most glaring health inequities over the last two years. For more on what those inequities are and what the solutions might be, I talked with three people who are paying close attention to the issues. Well, joining us, uh, Dr. Kelly Tice. Uh, She's the Health Equity Officer for Florida Blue. Dr. Tice, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. We're also joined by Dr. Saleh Rahman. He is Professor of Medicine and Co-Director of the Focused Inquiry and Research Experience Program at UCF's College of Medicine, where he teaches about culture, health, and society. Dr. Rahman, thank you as well. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we're also joined by journalist Retta Peoples. Uh, She recently produced a series of articles and many documentaries on healthcare disparities. Retta, thanks as well. Thank you for having me. Ritter, I want to start with you. You've written about three of the factors in healthcare disparities, legislative, environmental, and generational. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you decided to focus on these three aspects of health disparities. Well, actually, initially, um, those three aspects were uh, my targets. And then as I got deeper into it, I realized that there was a social uh, justice element to this as well. So um, I also touched on in, in the many documentaries about um, health inequities, which is different from health disparities a little bit. It has that social determinant mm-hmm. that's in there. So all four of those things, generational habits, environmental, legislative, and social 
were just um, four of the things that I thought would really get people to understand the basics about health disparities. One of the other things that really stands out too, and you, you write about this, is the disproportionately high maternal mortality rates amongst uh, black and brown women. Um, what are some of the reasons that the experts are telling you about the disparity in maternal mortality and, and are lawmakers paying attention to this? Yeah, one of the experts told me that black women, non-Hispanic black women, are three times more likely to die from childbirth, in childbirth, um, than white women. You know, and then when you go to um, pregnancy issues and and things like that during the pregnancy, out of 100,000 women, 11 will Mm -hmm. die from pregnancy-related issues and causes. When it gets to Black women, that's really non-Hispanic Black women. It's 44 out of 100,000 women who will die from pregnancy-related causes. You know, we just have to ask ourselves, what's causing that? How do we fix it? Dr. Kelly Tice, I want to turn to you now. Your position, health equity officer, is is a a new one at Florida Blue, but before that, you were a family physician, right? I'm wondering, kind of, in your career, what are some of the biggest gaps in healthcare access and equity that you've seen. And, and just thinking about this issue of maternal mortality and some of the statistics that Retta mentioned are quite staggering. What what do you kind of think about as you, as you contemplate this issue? Well, first, let me clarify that I came to Florida Blue about three years ago as a senior medical director for medical affairs uh, after having had a career in public health. Mm-hmm. And this uh, position of uh, chief health equity officer actually also includes a promotion to uh, vice president of medical affairs. Uh, the reason that's important, uh, not only is this the chief health equity officer position new and, and very important because of the position that Guidewell and Florida Blue has chosen to take in terms of working towards solutions for um, health disparities. But it's also important because as Vice President of Medical Affairs, the work that uh, was already under uh, my area of responsibility as it relates to um, looking at emerging infections, for instance, so public health surveillance, working closely with our quality teams and ensuring that we have um, equitable outcomes, responding to as clinical lead for COVID-19 as we watched COVID show us where health disparities existed, right? These aren't new conversations. So it is a logical expansion or extension of the role, but the the dedicated focus with having a chief health equity officer really serves to allow us to expand some of the collaborative partnerships and relationships that are necessary to solve this. To your question about uh, maternal morbidity, you know, just as with infant mortality, these are not numbers that are new to us, unfortunately. These are conversations that those of us who have worked in this area have had for for decades. What has been missing is the ability, uh, the desire, and the resources to host and have the right conversations and to reach upstream and address the things that become those determinants, right? So in each of these issues, maternal morbidity, uh, significantly so, has a lot of factors. It's related to the health of the mom at the time of pregnancy and delivery. It's related to stigma. You know, Black women require, in many cases, an advocate, a champion in order to be heard in the health setting. 
they are less likely to be believed if they report pain or discomfort or distress. And, and all of those things have to be solved with a collaborative approach because the things that drive it actually come from multiple different factors. And so the solutions have to be intensely and, and specifically collaborative. Professor Rahman, what are some of the biggest health disparities that you've been tracking and, and what are your thoughts on you know some of the, the causes? I'm, I'm wondering too, kind of from an academic point of view, has there been a change in the time that you've been working on some of these issues? Like, are, are you seeing people become more aware of these disparities and what needs to happen to to uh, to change these things? Thank you so much. I, I think the uh, reflection coming from my um, uh, panelists, co-panelists, what they said, I totally agree with all of it. And uh, from academic viewpoint, we must understand the intersectionality if we understand, want to understand the health inequality, inequity. Both. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, that every person, whoever residing in this community, residing in this society, are affected by multiple factors. And being a minority could be even double dipping, triple dipping sometime. For example, I have started cancer uh, last 20 years, screening behavior, screening, even in Tallahassee, I was 12 years faculty at Florida a University with uh, Tallahassee Memorial Hospital and also um, uh, affiliated with the FSU College of Medicine. Mm-hmm. We had uh, multiple National Institute of Health funded projects I directed, co-directed, uh, for the underserved community in Gasden County, in Leon County. And I can explain some of these are improving, but some are not. And that goes even deeper to our policy level issues, uh, structural issues, systemic issues. Those are needs to be addressed. For example, I have been tracking something called community economic status. I coined that word by measuring you know, average income or median income per zip code, availability of resources, transportation, distance to mammography facilities like that. And as you know, now we, we call the zip code is better predicted than genetic code for reason uh, because of that. We recently did a study with our Florida cancer data and two of my students actually looked into top five cancers and we compared first 15 years disparity versus last 15 years disparity. In fact, not very significant change happened. Change happening, but that change could be attributable to the other factors, not a drastic change in our policy. I wanted to ask about education too, Professor Rahman, because part of your role is helping guide these medical students and the, this, you know, the next generation of doctors. So how important is education in the, of the next generation of healthcare professionals and bridging some of these gaps in healthcare? And I wonder too about a broader pool of new graduate doctors and medical professionals. Is that going to help right some of these, these wrongs that have been around for a long time? Absolutely. I saw that um, as an academician, and that was my focus of even teaching, even a research area. Uh, I believe our future physicians can not only make a difference in their own practices, but become an advocate for change. And I, I thought um, in society, even in po- to policymakers, the physicians are highly regarded uh, about their opinion, about their 
uh, expert views. So those needs to be bring into an advocacy and an active change, an action type of change. For mm-hmm. example, in, in the curriculum, Institute of Medicine, uh, American Medical Association, everybody recognized that our curriculum are not sufficiently training our phys- future physicians, understanding the concept of intersectionality, disparity, equity, how uh, a different type of factors are affecting. Like some, someone with low education, uh, low income, uh, living in a, a poor condition, socioeconomic condition, all those will be l- uh, leading to a social stressor. And that has huge impact even biologically. We can prove mm. that the person's health status will not be okay. Even the COVID, I think, exposed a, a tremendous amount that disparity. Like, you know, when an African-American, uh, say, for example, uh, getting the disease or cases, uh, if we consider uh, with the Uh, non-Hispanic white population, the death is coming 1.7 times and hospitalization coming 2.5 times. Hmm. So that that signifies that so many factors are playing role, starting from even, even in our curriculum, we need to understand when we interview or take a history of a patient, what are the social factors we actually gather? We hmm. only ask about, okay, do you smoke? Do you drink this type of... So- we didn't never ask or... I'm not saying never. I mean, some people are doing definitely. Um, uh, we, we do not explore their social support, social network, mm-hmm. uh, their social stressor coming from different factors. So those are the factors and how interprofessional um, combination like social work, nursing, physical therapy, pharmacy student, all together can create a comprehensive plan. For, for the betterment of the patient. So those are the education much needed. And that's what we are thriving for at UCFCOM. And I think many uh, medical schools are uh, heading to that direction. If you're just joining us, we're talking about health disparities. We're with Dr. Kelly Tice, uh, Professor Saleh Rahman, and journalist Reda Peoples. And speaking of COVID-19, that does bring up a point that all of you have, have mentioned, touched on, and, and, and talked about. Ritter, I want to come back to you because in some of your reporting on health disparities, you highlighted how the focus at the start of the pandemic was on the elderly as a population of significant risk of COVID, but there wasn't so much a focus on black and brown um, people, even though those households were affected worse than white households. Just talk a little bit about you know what you uncovered there and, and whether you have a sense that maybe that disparity has changed at all in the last two years, or are we still facing the same kind of disparity in, in that regard? Some of these health disparities that we're talking about now, a lot of us know and have known for a long time that there are a lot of disparities and inequities in the Black community. Um, Dr. Fauci got on stage and actually said, talked about the health disparities when it comes to specifically Black people. And I remember watching that or hearing that and going into the living room and and watching the TV saying, I can't believe that somebody actually just spoke out about health disparities in a discussion that really wasn't about health disparities. It was about COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I thought that that was really, really good. Um, Legislatively, uh, there's had, there had, have been um, numerous things that a lot of legislators have tried to do um, in the path. In the past, I think back in the 80s, the National Cancer Institute 
pulled together a um, task force, and that task force was on Black and minority health. That actually led to legislation uh, like the Minority Health Improvement Act. So that kind of took us down a road that was supposed to uh, close the gap. However, Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're really where we need to be. Well, I know we're not where we need to be as far as closing the gap. It's interesting. Um, it'll be interesting to find out what some of those ideas as we move forward in this, what some of those ideas uh, will be to help close that gap. And I do wonder too, if some of them could be applied to things other than COVID related or pandemic related, right? If we're talking about kind of bigger systemic changes to, to help sort of bridge some of these these inequities. Absolutely. And, you know, even with COVID, in some areas, it was hard to get to a place that had the vaccine. When the vaccine first came to Florida, they were, um, I believe they were in the grocery stores like Publix. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those grocery stores aren't in Black communities. So that made it very difficult for us to get to places to be vaccinated. And then if you want to go back historically, you know, um, there's things like the Tuskegee experiment, the Tuskegee research study, um, where it was, people were being injected with syphilis, Black men, and um, they weren't given the actual, um, even though there was a cure for that, they weren't given the treatment, which was basic penicillin. You know, so rightfully so, a lot of Black people have um, fears of the United States medical industry, you know, and it it dates back, you know, historically decades. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think now, even with COVID bringing that into the mix, a lot of us are still leery of the vaccine. Dr. Tice, you alluded to this before, you were at the forefront of Florida Blue's COVID response. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenge and health equity, health um, disparity, rather, that the last two years of the pandemic has has brought to light. Sure. You know, those of us, again, who have have worked in this space, um, when when the initial data began to emerge uh, related to COVID-19 and its impacts, we rapidly understood, you know, a, a condition that was worse in folks with diabetes lung disease, um, obesity, um, and, you know, social condition challenges um, was invariably going to be worse in uh, marginalized populations where we knew control of those diseases was already, you know, not what it should be. What our response, though, demonstrated was the need, the value of applying the data that you have and then collaborating to solve. So one of the things that Retta mentioned, you know, the initial allocation of vaccines were deployed through major grocery store chain, for instance, um, Mm -hmm. through their retail pharmacies first. But it really left even those who were in minority communities that would have accepted vaccine, it left them without access. And the way to solve that and what we chose to do was to take a look at our communities around the state look at vaccine rates, and look at the areas of highest social vulnerability. One of the reasons that the structural and institutional discriminatory and racist issues, they actually present as health outcomes problems is because they create things like household overcrowding, poor access to jobs where folks can earn a living wage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was all of those things that kept folks from being able to take safety precautions when the pandemic began, right? Mm -hmm. couldn't stay home from work. Maybe you didn't have proper personal protective equipment, so you couldn't protect yourself. 
if you didn't work, you didn't get paid kind of mm. thing. Even taking time to go get a vaccine, I mean, that may be a, a high bar for a lot of folks who are working two, three jobs potentially, or maybe transportation access to, to vaccine sites might be an issue as well. Exactly. So the, the approach to solving that has to be created with that in mind. When the event is scheduled, where the event is hosted, what sort of policy do you have related to no-shows or missed or late appointments? All of those things have to reflect the population that you're trying to manage. And our approach, our approach really was one to solve for the member of the patient, the, the resident of the community with the most challenges first. Because if we could solve it for someone who was transportation challenged, who, um, for instance, had to be able to access vaccine after a work shift, if we solved it for them, then those who were able to drive across two or three sets of county lines to get vaccine, we knew they were going to be okay. And once we identified the areas of highest needs in our communities around the state, we then identified the partner that was necessary to solve for that, right? We don't house vaccine, we don't give it outside of our clinical assets, but we could partner then with the retail, the neighborhood pharmacists in those areas we had identified to actually host and and sponsor some of those vaccine clinics. And the Mm -hmm. gift of that is once Florida Blue has sort of left uh, that community after that event, the relationship with the neighborhood pharmacist was strengthened and it remained. And and that's where the value and that sort of collaboration is. One of the things I think, you know, is a long-term investment we've got to make, and my colleague alluded to it, is we've got to improve representation. In, in the medical fields. One, one of the challenges for us as, as we tried to solve for some of that vaccine hesitancy in the communities that were at greatest risk of severe disease from COVID-19 was to, to identify um, physicians and other clinical leaders in those communities that could carry the message. And so the underrepresentation that Blacks and other minorities experience in the medical fields really shows up in uh, circumstances like this because the folks that we're trying to reach really want to hear from an expert that they trust, that they feel has at least similar lived experience. One of the of our, our long-range efforts is through our Equity Alliance to actually invest in more training and support of underrepresented minorities in fields like medicine and you know other graduate level uh, type careers. Well, Professor Rahman, back to you for a moment. I mean, thinking about the vaccine as as one aspect of the pandemic and its rollout, what are you seeing in terms of maybe a change in how it was deployed at the start versus what we're seeing now? Like, have some of the disparities that we might have seen at the at the start of the rollout been resolved, or do you still see some of these kind of lingering problems with vaccine access and and distribution now? So, uh, this is a great point and great question. I think uh, we all should pay attention to the basic stuff that I always talk about when it comes to COVID. If we look at six factors, like risk to exposure, risk to severe illness, uh, disparities in COVID-related hospitalization, disparities in COVID-related underlying comorbidities, disparities in death, or even some unintended consequences. All these even six seven factors I can name. And mm-hmm. each and every component has deep link to the social determinants of health. Social determinants when you call, okay, some person low income, low education, living in a low socioeconomic or poor condition, crowded area, you have higher exposure to COVID. Simple. 
And same way, when it comes to the severity of the illness, we are looking into undercurrent causes and uh, tons of evidence are coming out that if someone has comorbidity situation, diabetes, hypertension, other kidney diseases, all those are also playing some role uh, in terms of severity of the disease. Hospitalization also uh, linked to those factors. Mm-hmm. Who had exposure to those comorbidities more? Historically, we see because of the lack of access and all other factors that we mentioned are connected, interconnected. That's why I mentioned so many times that uh, you know, intersectionality is, is important. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the prevention, the, I will go back and I, I give this example even in my class that how public trust could be ruined in long time ago, like Tuskegee, and still can affect. In fact, when I was students in uh, one of my uh, degrees in Alabama, and I went to Tuskegee area, actually interviewed uh, local people to see their perception about science and receptors of science. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Still mistrust, still, uh, uh, I would say, disconnection, that the, the breach of public trust. How much we have done to overcome those, how much social marketing we did with COVID-related vaccination, almost, I would say, like negligible to me. Mm. Uh, so advocacy, social marketing, education needed at the same time, the structural, the distribution issue, the where we can reach the access also very, very important because if someone has a full-time job, sometimes two jobs, where they can get very easily, where they can get those without much effort, rather, you know, I can go anytime I'm driving and, and waiting in the line because I don't have to worry about something else, daycare or my childcare or even my another shift of job. Those mm. are connected. And I do not think we have done enough. Dr. Tice, I wonder what you think about what you're going to be looking at as a, some of the biggest challenges on the other side of the pandemic. What do you think some of the biggest challenges to health equity are going to be? Sure. So, you know, first of all, I I echo everything that was just stated. Um, We have got to be able to solve some of those those things that impact delayed care um, and and contribute to the fact that minority women and minorities in general tend to show up um, later in the the, um, disease process before they're originally uh, initially diagnosed. Uh, to that end, uh, one of the things that one of the COVID impacts that we've seen is delayed care. You know, folks were fearful about coming into health settings. Right. You know, maybe they, because of their finances, they didn't feel like they could afford it. Um, you know, so but that tra- will translate into newly diagnosed cancers and other things that could have been prevented with typical uh, care. We now have record numbers of people who um, have signed up in in marketplace plans um, through this open enrollment period. And so there's this opportunity now for us to be very intentional, very early about identifying those folks and routing them appropriately to preventive services and screening. That, and that means we have to address those things that were just described, right? If mm-hmm. you know, what is their understanding of health and healthcare and how to access the health system? So, you know, we, we do something called you know unboxing your plan, where we teach people, you know, what it is you bought, so that they know how to leverage that. You know, as a physician educator, when I was in practice, I would you know often say to my my patients, you know, listen, this is what you you should expect when you go here. 
you know, this is what you should get. This is the product you're buying. You, you're taking your healthcare dollar and you are spending it somewhere. And this is what you should get in return. Many people, depending upon, you know, generations of limited access, really don't even know how to engage services in the health system. And that's why we see folks seek primary care, for instance, in emergency room settings, right? So we want folks getting the right care you know, from the right provider or clinician at the right time. And, and that, that takes intervention on, on multiple levels. But I think if there were, you know, if there's one thing that we were going to double down on this year, it is really ensuring that our members um, have meaningful access. So not just you're assigned a doc, there's a, you know, a physician's name on the back of your card, but that we have um, removed the barriers to, that exist to getting you connected. And by doing so, because our members live in communities, right, with, with other Florida residents, we hope to model the right um, sort of behaviors um, and, and influence the entire community in terms of their health behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, Rita Peoples, I want to give you the last word here. I wonder what you think about the role of the media in addressing some of these health disparities and helping bridge the gaps that exist in healthcare. What role do you think the media is going to play going forward? Uh, Well, we have a lot to do. We have a lot to do in the media to um, make people aware of what's happening, these disparities, these inequities. Um, But more importantly, I think legislation is the key. As -hmm. far as trying to change hearts and minds of people who may or may not believe that disparities even exist, um, I think we've been trying to do that for far too long. I think what we need now is legislators who are going to um, go to bat for us, who are going to talk about these disparities. We've got Senator Becca Rausch uh, in Massachusetts, who is fighting for um, health justice, uh, environmental justice. Uh, We need more people like that in Congress. And I think that's the way we uh, close this gap. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with journalist Retta People. She's produced a series of articles and many documentaries about health disparities. Retta, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Matthew. Also joining us today, Dr. Kelly Tice. She is the Chief Health Equity Officer and Vice President of Medical Affairs for Florida Blue and Guidewell. Dr. Tice, thank you as well. Thank you. And Dr. Salat Rahman, Professor of Medicine at UCF's College of Medicine. Dr. Rahman, thank you so much as well. Thank you, and glad to be here. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Intersection's intern is Allegra Montesano. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.